Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. That being said, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, I earnestly thought we would be finishing the book today. And I thought better of it. Even though Paul's final conclusion in verses 20 and 21 are related, I thought better of it simply because I didn't know where we'd be going next. And so I thought I would postpone having to make a decision for next Sunday one more week and procrastinate that and uh, see where the Lord would take us next and what, we, what He would have for us to learn from His Word. But once you've found your place there, I want to tell you a story that you might be familiar with. It has to do with the legend of the Red Hand of O'Neill. Even today, an image of the Red Hand of O'Neill is presented on shields and various coats of arms in Ireland, but the Red Hand of O'Neill is the symbol of the O'Neill family, Uh, again, an ancient Irish family, a medieval Irish family, and the Red Hand is is sort of their badge of barony. The legend goes that back before Ireland was fully settled, a provision was made by those who had the authority to do so, that the first hand on the land possessed the land. So much in the same way that the American frontier was established and land was encouraged to be developed, the first hand on the land in the American West was given to you. In the same way Ireland was developed as well, the first to lay his hand on the land was given the land. But one of the men who wanted to do that was O'Neill, from whom the princes of Ulster would eventually come from and descend from in Northern Ireland, Protestant Ireland. But O'Neill was furiously rowing in Sif competition towards the land. And as he neared there, another boat took the lead just before reaching shore, and he fell behind. And so, to quote from one historian, with a grim look of mingled wrath and triumph at the rival boat, the strong-minded, iron-nerved O'Neill dropped the oars seized a battle axe, chopped off one of his hands, and threw it on shore so his hand was there first. And thus he was given the land. Not sure I would do that. That's some pretty serious commitment for a piece of land, albeit granted a rather large piece of land. But, uh, you know, maybe you're not willing to give up your hand, but many of us are willing, in fact, to sacrifice quite a bit in order to improve our standard of living. It is remarkable to think what we might be willing to give up in this life, including even the life to come, in order just to build up a little bit more wealth now, today, or maybe tomorrow. Live just a little bit more comfortably. Enjoy this life just a little bit more. We'll sacrifice quite a lot to maintain our standard of living, and including our eternal reward. And it seems that perhaps while no sacrifice is too great to invest in in this life in many occasions, and for many, any sacrifice at all is too great to expect from God's people in investing in the next one. 
Now, we wouldn't confess that with our mouth, but our actions seem to indicate the same. Any sacrifice or any expectation for sacrifice to invest in our eternal future is asking simply too much. But as Paul begins his doxology in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he wants to make sure that we have our priorities right. And because we have our eyes fixed on the glory of God, we're not wooed away from the truth. Our affections are consumed by Him. And of course, in the beginning of chapter 6 and throughout the passage, we've seen how, how the love of money and the love of the things of this world can really corrupt the way we think allow opportunity for Satan to grab a foothold. And so he gives two instructions for the rich. And there's no reason to be clever here because the exhortations are really straightforward. No need for alliteration. In fact, studies, believe it or not, um, I know Baptists who love alliterations just resent hearing this, but uh, research has shown that alliterations actually do nothing to contribute towards your memory of a sermon outline. And so we can get rid of those alliterations anyway. But nevertheless, there's no need for alliteration here because you can simply find our outline in the text. Very straightforward. Probably easier for you to remember it that way. By just following the text, first, fix your hope on God. Find that in verse 17, and then do good with God's surplus, or do good with what God has given to you in verses 18 and 19. Use your resources in a way that is going to be honoring to Him. So looking at the first one, let's read starting in verse 17. Instruct those who are rich. Now, stop right there. Instruct those who are rich. Who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? He's not talking about me. (laughs) In fact, it's about time that he's finally going to give some serious instructions to the rich. Because, well, they had it coming to them. They had theirs. Now it's time for them to, for Paul to get a little bit stern with the rich here. I mean, we all love when others receive instruction, right? A little corrective reproof, as long as it's not reproving us. Like hearing of what others need to change in their lives, just not ourselves. We read a quote from John Flavel last week who said, Brethren, it is easier to declare a thousand sins of others than to mortify one sin in ourselves. Certainly that might be true in this context, but I want to warn you away from that. So here's the thing. When Paul's talking about the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, by his definition, he's talking about you and me. According to Paul's definition, everybody in this room would be qualified as the rich. And you might say, well, hold on just a minute. You haven't seen my income. You haven't seen my salary. Just hold on a minute. You have, I know what uh, rich looks like, and I'm most definitely not rich, and I have an IRS statement to prove it. But just like everything else, if we're going to understand this passage the right way, we have to understand the concept of rich and the rich and the poor in the mind of first century Ephesians. How it was understood in its original context. Because I think maybe that we would grow a little bit tired in the American church of of hearing the very typical exhortation, look, you are rich compared to, I mean, consider, consider those who are in Nicaragua. 
just to pick a country out of the blue, a third world country. I mean, think of how much more you have compared to them. And so comparatively, you are tremendously rich. And we kind of grow weary of those sort of arguments. If you think you're poor, just compare yourself to the people there or in some other third world country. Well, the poor in third world countries would be a little bit more comparable to what the poor would constitute in an ancient Near Eastern setting. That's true. And uh, much more so than our concept of poor people in America. But see, that doesn't really help because we walk away with sort of the attitude, okay, I get it. You know, I, I'm poor in America. I'm not poor compared to maybe somebody who is poor in Nicaragua. But the idea is that I need to just be content with my poor status in America and being that I'm rich by comparison. But you're still thinking, I'm poor. I'm just not as poor. Or I'm not rich. I'm just a little bit more rich. And besides, I don't live in Nicaragua or any other third world country for that matter. I live in America. And don't you realize how expensive it is to live here? I mean, Ocasio-Cortez can't afford an apartment in Washington, D.C. until she starts receiving her, uh, her uh, congressional salary next year. Or so she says, I haven't seen her tax returns either, and I don't need to, nor have the desire to. But I do understand the cost of living a little bit in America. I did go grocery shopping this last week on behalf of my wife. It had been a long time since I had been grocery shopping, I'll confess to you. But nevertheless, I was quite shocked, shell-shocked, when I went to get lunch meat at our local grocery store and saw that it was something like $8 a pound for turkey. And at first I thought, okay, well, that's, <laughs> that's beef, not turkey. I misread the label. And, and then I also thought, well, that's, that's got to be like the, whatever you would call it, the, the really fine cut. I mean, this is, this is like the high-class uh, beef cut lunch meat. And then I realized that that was all they had. And it didn't seem like the shelf was just empty. It, you know, it was well stocked. And so it seemed like $8 a pound was the standard price. I have no idea if that's the normal standard price at whatever grocery store. But at this grocery store, it happened to be $8 a pound. And I thought, well, there's no way you're going to fill up on that. So I got three family size packs of Oreos instead because they were a lot cheaper. And when I got home, Mel said, I was wondering what you were going to come home with instead of what was on my list. <laughs> she knows me well. But anyway, if you want to understand what rich versus poor meant in Ephesus, to be rich simply meant that you had discretionary funds. So if you want to understand whether you are rich or poor in Paul's mind, ask yourself, if you have discretionary funds, if you have funds that are left over at the end of your workday, and before you go off into, uh, well, discretionary funds, dis what discretionary funds? Don't you know that by the time I pay for my car, by the time I pay for my school loans, my rent, my phone bill, my internet, my cable television, and three packs of Oreos, I don't have any discretionary funds. Well, you did have discretionary funds. You just already chose how to spend it. That's your problem. To have discretionary funds 
in an ancient Near Eastern setting meant that you got to eat meat. Did you eat meat this last month? By choice, by the way, not because you chose not to, uh, because uh, you were apostate vegetarian. God gave us the earth to subdue it, and that includes the cattle. Amen? It's the second amen I called for this month. I must be on to something. You responded better that time as well. Uh, If you got to eat meat this last month, you had discretionary funds. To have discretionary funds in an ancient Near Eastern setting meant that you had more than one pair of ragged clothes. And you might say, well, I have more than one pair of ragged clothes, but I got all my clothes from Walmart. I mean, no offense to our employees who might work at Walmart, and to you I say, okay, Target. So as not to be an unnecessary stumbling block. But um, you choose to have more clothes in your closet. doesn't matter whether you got your clothes from Walmart or you happen to pick your clothes up from Brooks Brothers. If you ate meat at all this month, you're the rich that Paul is talking about. If you have more than one set of ragged clothes, you're the rich that Paul is talking about. If you have furniture in your house, any furniture at all, you'd be the rich that Paul is talking about in an ancient Near Eastern context. If you have so much as a bed to lay on rather than a dirt floor, you are the rich that Paul is talking about. A bed is not a necessity of life. Oh, that it were so. Just don't tell Mattress King Warehouse. No, the poor slept on the floor. Closet full of clothes, you're rich. If you can eat more than what is absolutely necessary to live, you have discretionary funds. Therefore, you are the rich that Paul is talking about. He's not comparing what your income is or what your standard of living is compared to others who are rich. And that's how Paul is classifying poor. No, no, no. Poor had a very specific meaning. That meant that you were destitute. You were restricted to the basic, basic, fundamental necessities of life, and you had no idea where those basic, fundamental necessities of life were going to come from tomorrow. If you ever eat out, you're rich. If you have, speaking of tomorrow, any kind of retirement plan, any kind of IRA, even if you're on Medicare or Medicaid and you can expect something back from the government, you have a Social Security check of any amount coming to you, or whether you can look forward to a Social Security check coming to you. To start, in spite of the talking heads on television, there will be Social Security coming to you, whether it's 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. There'd be riot, riots in the streets if there weren't. Might not be much, but nevertheless, no matter what you can expect in return, you have something for tomorrow. And therefore, you are the rich in Paul's mind. If you have enough money that you can expect to afford a meal tomorrow, that's it. You have enough reserved 
that you don't have to worry at least about tomorrow. You know where your meal is coming from. You are the rich that Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You understand that? To be poor in both the Old and the New Testaments meant that anything beyond what you needed to afford your meal today is discretionary. Do you remember the widow and her son in, in 1 Kings chapter 17? In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah asks her for some water and a piece of bread. That's not asking for a lot, is it? Just some water and a piece of bread? And she says in verse 12, As Yahweh your God lives, I have no bread. Only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. That's the poor. That's the destitute. That's what it looks like to have no discretionary funds, folks. It's not, well, I don't have any discretionary funds after I've spent all of it. (laughs) You don't have funds to spend on discretionary funds. So you're not poor just because you already decided how to use your discretionary funds and now you have nothing left to give or to bless anyone. And we also see quite a number of examples in the New Testament what it looked like to be poor in the first century. But you remember at the very end of Mark chapter 12, Jesus is watching how the rich, and, and who are they? Who are the rich? Well, the people who have discretionary funds. The people who have more than they need in the strictest sense, in the true sense of the word need. They have more than what they need. They have an abundance. And he's watching how the rich put their discretionary money into the treasury. I mean, they gave what they didn't really need. That wasn't anything beyond what you expect. Jesus offers no commentary on what they were doing. They were giving those discretionary funds. But then a poor widow came along and put in two small copper coins, which amount to about a cent. And Jesus said to his disciples in verses 43 and 44 of Mark chapter 12, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their what? Out of their surplus. Out of the discretionary funds. Out of that which was beyond necessary to meet the basic fundamental necessities of life for survival. That's what they gave out of. That wasn't a sacrifice, really, was it? 
They gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty. What does poverty mean? Well, Jesus tells us what poverty means. She put in all she owned, all that she had to live on. And poverty, her poverty, she had two small coins. And what those coins meant for her was life or death. And that was a devastating reality because here's this woman given her life to an apostate, pharisaically driven Jewish system. Now, you don't need a seminary degree to figure out what Jesus meant when he said that she gave all that she had to live on. You were never left wondering what that meant, were you? Well, what did, what did Jesus actually mean? Uh, she gave all that she had to live on. We don't walk away from that and say, wow, she gave up her standard of living. That's what Jesus meant. She just gave up her standard of living. Maybe that's our stumbling block that keeps... Uh, that keeps us um, from carrying out the generosity that is described in verses 18 and 19. Maybe that's the issue for us. My standard of living is the way I want to use my surplus. And if I gave generously on top of that, I have to give up my standard of living. Well, that's, that's a difficult thing. I mean, that's a sacrificial thing. Dare we say that? We understand the difference between giving up a standard of living. That's what the rich were doing in Mark chapter 12 and giving all that she had to live on. Now, I'll give you this qualifier. We are not admonished in Scripture to give up everything in order that we would live in poverty either. We're, not, we're going to give, get to that in just a moment. But what we need to understand is the context of the poor versus the rich if we're going to be able to apply 1 Timothy chapter 6 correctly. And you need to put out of your mind any concept of, well, I'm poor because I'm poor in comparison to the rich in America. No, because you have discretionary funds of some sort, that maybe or maybe not you have already decided to spend in some way, you have wealth. You are the rich. We understand the difference between giving up a standard of living and giving all that you have to live on. And so now that we got that out of the way and we can all think of ourselves justifiably as the rich who are described in verse 17, we can get on our way to understanding what Paul wants to say to us. Verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, let's work our way backwards here just a little bit. First of all, understand that um, God isn't calling us, again, to live some kind of monastic life. That's, that's not what he's calling us to. He's not holding up poverty as a spiritually superior position, which is the presupposition of a monastic life. 
or we're all supposed to be running around like some kind of stoic ascetic. The Bible doesn't condemn riches per se, nor does the Bible even condemn enjoying those riches. When God gives excess, He is pleased by your joy in the excess. He's pleased by it. There's nothing wrong with that. It has to be predicated by two things. For one, in that whatever excess He determines to give you, you have a spirit of contentment that recognizes any good thing comes from above. So that's prerequisite. And second, that you don't become conceited. And we're going to take a look at what conceit looks like in this context in just a little bit. But the Bible doesn't condemn being rich. And the Bible doesn't condemn being poor either. Though the Bible does condemn some who are rich, and the Bible does condemn some who are poor. Material wealth has nothing intrinsically to do with God's blessing or God's curse or His displeasure. Proverbs, for instance, repeatedly condemns the sluggard, the one who is slow to get out to work. The one who always has an excuse, there's a lion in the streets. There's no lion out there. Well, there might be. We always have an excuse for not working. The sloth or the one who sleeps long, resulting in poverty. Or the one who pursues wild, big-eyed, money-making dreams, and that turns into poverty. Or one who even does something that he can't make money doing just because he, he likes doing it, and so he does it. Even though he doesn't make any money doing it to the neglect of his responsibilities. Or the poverty resulting from someone who refuses to take wise counsel. The Bible condemns all of that kind of poverty. Any of that kind of poverty is a disgrace. But being Poor in and of itself, obviously, is only shameful if those are the reasons you are poor. But even Jesus was poor, and it was not for lack of self-discipline. It was not for lack of hard work. It wasn't for lack of knowledge. It wasn't lack for truth. It wasn't for lack of God's blessing. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So, two lessons from that. One, again, we see the biblical concept of what it meant to be poor reinforced in the life of Christ. He had nowhere to lay his head. None at all. And being poor does not necessarily mean that you are a sluggard, that you are lazy, and that you don't have the pleasure of God. But you also have the rich who are repeatedly condemned in Scripture for their self-centeredness, their love of money, their lack of love for Christ, and for their arrogance. And so you can have a wrong view of money when you're rich, and you can have a wrong view of money when you're poor. And you can love money when you're rich, and, contrary to popular belief, you can love money when you're poor. Many who are poor are very quick to run towards money-making schemes. Many who are poor are prone to bitterness towards those who are rich, demanding redistribution of wealth, discontent, because they love money. And 
You can also be rich without loving money, and you can be poor without being lazy. But where God chooses to give to the excess beyond your basic needs for the fundamentals of life, for survival, providing that you have a right view of money, he takes pleasure in you taking pleasure in what he has given to you. He takes pleasure in that. Of course, that also means you have to have a right perspective of where it comes from. So, again, uh, the end of verse 17, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, but you also have to recognize where the source of your blessing comes from. So your hope isn't in your riches, but on God. God gives these things. By the way, just as sort of a side note, the same principle applies for us spiritually. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, Not that we are adequate in ourselves, right? To consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. That's written in a spiritual context, but we can obviously understand the correlation here as well. But those who count themselves rich spiritually also fix their hope on their own works. And likewise, those who are rich physically have a tendency to fix their hope on themselves as being the source of their rich blessing. And of course, you are all familiar with Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, that says, All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So, the summation of everything that you've done, all this spiritual wealth that you've accumulated is nothing but a totally repugnant rag that is completely worthless. Ezekiel 33.13 says, He who so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity, none of this righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of his which he has committed, he will die. That's why Romans 3.27 says, where is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. And that's why if you return over to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, to Matthew chapter 5, in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 5, the very first thing we read is that he opened his mouth. And so what's the first thing that he says when he opens his mouth, starting in verse 3? Well, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Same kind of poor as the poor women, woman who gave those two small coins. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The one who is bankrupt, the one who has absolutely nothing, the one who has no hope in their future. Blessed is that kind of one who is poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One who realizes that their soul is completely bankrupt. They have nothing to contribute to God. There is no value in their works. Of course, the antithesis of that you can find over in Luke chapter 18. Another familiar passage to all of you. 
Jesus is teaching his disciples, and after telling them about the kingdom of heaven, he begins teaching them in parables. And we find in verse 9, And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But this tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, there we are. We have the contrast between the one who is spiritually rich and the one who is spiritually poor. And we can understand the importance that if you have a right understanding of your finances and your position before God and using those rightly, you want, you want God to find joy in your use of the excess that He has given to you. Your heart, first of all, has to be right. You have to be poor in spirit even though you are rich physically. But then Paul also tells us, Back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, the very beginning of verse 17, do not be conceited. Don't be conceited. And this couples up with our second point in verses 18 and 19, do good with God's surplus. Now, before we get to it, though, because they are or inseparably linked together, what does conceited look like in this context? Before you immediately rule out, well, I'm not proud. I'm not bankrupt. I'm not, um, rather, I'm not arrogant. I'm not puffed up. I'm spiritually poor because I have dependent on Christ for my salvation and not my works. That's not the, that's not the humble in spirit or the conceited that Paul is talking about in this context in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul tells us the kind of conceited he has in mind. He has a barometer, if you will, that will tell you the nature of conceit in your soul. How you use the surplus will tell you whether you have an arrogant spirit or a humble spirit. Paul is contrasting a negative command with a positive one, right? That's going to give us a clue on what conceited looks like in this context. So the converse of the one who's arrogant in verse 17 is the one who's generous and does good with their money in verses 18 and 19. You got that? Instruct them to do good. Those who have a surplus, those who have beyond what they need, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they... may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now, why is that? Any ideas? It's a rhetorical question. You don't really have to answer the question. But, but why is that? 
Instruct them to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Why does that characterize the life of someone who is not conceited? Pretty straightforward. Because the one who has surplus is eager to be generous because they recognize the source of their surplus. They realize that they're a steward. They wouldn't have it anyway if the Lord wasn't good to give it to them. So they are not conceited. They don't believe that this accumulation of wealth has come from themselves. It's come from God. And because it hasn't come from themselves... They don't really have the right to determine, well, this is how I want to spend my money anyway. There's no first-person personal pronouns in their vernacular with regard to their money. Well, I earned it. Therefore, I, I can decide how I want to spend it. Well, not really. It was given to you as a stewardship. In fact, David says in the Psalms, I believe, that these things are given as a test to you. A test to see what you do with that stewardship. Now, some of you, I know for a fact, some of you no doubt give very generously in your abundance. I don't know for a fact because I go around taking polls of what you give or I monitor uh, everybody's giving in our church. I don't do that at all. Don't even give myself access to that. I told you that before. Nothing's changed there. Too many ministers are motivated by money. And so they'll watch. They'll keep a watch. In fact, if you go to the Mormon church, you find yourself sitting before the Mormon priest uh, on an annual basis and you'll have to give an account to him for what you gave to the Mormon church. Many churches have in all the pews, or maybe on the pulpit, or other decorum or furniture in the church, you know, that this was given by so-and-so. I want to honor the man. Everybody needs to know So we'll name that row after him. Or we'll name that pew after her. We want to know what people give. But some of you, no doubt, give very generously in your abundance, and God is pleased with that. You give in the abundance and the outflow and love and affection of your heart. Some of you, I know, also don't give at all. You have a very unbiblical understanding of of your money and from where it comes, and maybe you thought up to this point, well, look, but I am poor. I don't have the discretionary funds that you're talking about. I would love to be able to give to the Lord, and for His purposes, I would love to give back. But the fact of the matter is, by the time I've spent all my money on my discretionary funds, I have nothing left to give. I have nothing left to give to the Lord's work. And, And again, the Lord is pleased that you take joy in the surplus that He's given to you. But the problem is, you have a wrong priority. If, if you take greater value in, in your surplus and spending your discretionary money on self, 
rather than at least making a priority to use some of that discretionary money for the Lord's work. It's a question of what you value. But the reality is most of us find ourselves somewhere in the middle, don't we? Some give generously out of the abundance and affection of our hearts for love of the Lord's work. Love for seeing how those resources can be used for the advancement of ministry. Others of us don't give it all because maybe we're a little bit self-deceived about the resources that we do have that we could potentially use for the Lord's work and find joy in that generosity too. But most of us give just enough to soothe our conscience. Just a little bit of what gets by. And we'd rather not think a whole lot about it. But actually, the idea that we find here is a, is a premeditated kind of generosity. Which means that uh, you don't just empty out your pockets, whatever happens to be there when the offering plate goes by. You've thought about this. You, you've thought about what you could do as you labored, as you worked, to be generous to honor the Lord who has given you and blessed you so richly because you are rich. But that needs to be corrected as well. If you're giving just in a spirit to ease your own conscience so that you feel like, well, I'm giving something and therefore I, I don't need to take weight and uh, consideration towards uh, Paul's admonition to the rich here, the key word for you is, is premeditated generosity. Again, that's the idea. Premeditated generosity. Why? Out of duty? Yes. Duty is worship. Duty has gotten a very bad rap in contemporary evangelicalism. But obeying God, seeking to honor God, please God in a sense of duty, is honoring to Him. So that's first of all. But secondly, not just duty, but love. You give out of both, but you also give generously because of your love. That's all. You know, it is a matter of no small concern to me how difficult this is for us. We'll give to everyone and everything that we love except Jesus Christ. In fact, millions of people will give, tremendously sacrificially even. They'll give out of their poverty. They'll give where their next meal is coming from to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. They'll give for false motivation, for false reasons, to a false God who is being falsely worshipped in a false religious system. They'll give generously. For want of something in this life, something temporal, that they can get in return, where thieves break in and steal and moth and rust destroy. But John MacArthur points out, why is it that millions will outgive for ill motivations when we have the opportunity to give with the right motivations? That's a fair point, isn't it? 
It's a fair point. It is the desire of every parent to bless their children, and it is their great joy to give to them generously. In fact, in most cases, they don't even think about it. Most cases, they won't think about it. If they see their, their son, their daughter, their grandchildren in need, they'll just give. They'll give sacrificially without expectation for anything in return, without even expectation for acknowledgement. They don't want acknowledgement. They don't want to publicize their generosity towards their children. Why? Because it's expected, because they love their children. In fact, it's expected so much so that and it's, it's actually a biblical principle. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? So the parent, any parent, wants to bless, they're eager to give. There's nothing wrong with that except for when a child's joy because, uh, becomes something of an idol in a parent's own heart, and that it is its own issue. A parent will give because their child is their idol. Maybe the child threatens the parents with their love and affection. Uh, they know that if they don't give, their child won't talk to them, won't come to Thanksgiving for dinner. And so they allow themselves to be manipulated, even though it is to the spiritual detriment of their child. Because in truth, they've idolatrized their children's affections. Or maybe their child is a little bit younger and they'll just throw a temper tantrum. Though in this world, temper tantrums aren't uh, restricted to children anymore, are they? Certainly not. see all kinds of adults throwing their own little pity parties and temper tantrums. And so the parent gives out of fear of losing their child's friendship if they just say no. But the point is, parents, good and bad, will give overwhelmingly to their children, even without the least consideration for ever getting that money back or, or how they could have instead spent that money to make their life maybe just a little bit more comfortable. Well, that $350 to you meant a new flat screen TV to me. Oh, what I give up for the love of my child. That's just natural to being a parent, just natural to loving. But Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 7, he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? The point is, you being evil, give generously to your children because you love them. And so, how much more is the Father going to be generous to you because He loves you? Why wouldn't a father give his son... Uh, uh, or why would, why would rather, I should say, why would a father give his son a stone when he asks for bread or a snake when he asks for a fish? Why wouldn't he do that? Jesus said even a father who is wretched and depraved will give to his son because at least he loves his own son. So, then, why is it so difficult for us to give generously to our father who has so richly blessed us anyway? Why is it a thought We'll give readily to all kinds of things that we love. It's not to Christ. 
Turn to Matthew chapter 25, would you? Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. We read, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? King will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then you will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment the righteous into eternal life. Why? Because we're saved by our tithe? We're saved by what we give to the church? We're saved by what we give back to the Lord's service? Well, no. See, when... You go back to First Timothy chapter six, verse nineteen. Paul says, Instruct the rich, you and me, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So, Matthew chapter 25, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19, shows a condition of the heart that results in eternal life. The heart of a parent loves their child and will give generously to them, find ways to give sacrificially to them. Parents will refinance their homes, sell their homes, take out huge school loans in order to send their child off to college, hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's economy, hundreds of thousands of dollars, sacrifice deeply in order to bless their children just a little bit, give them a little bit of an upper leg in life, which is highly questionable in a college degree today anyway? Because they love their children. And they have the freedom to do that. 
They have the freedom to do that because they have the freedom to choose how they use their discretionary funds. They do it because they love their children. But likewise, we can see very clearly that the heart who loves God will also show a spirit of generosity to him simply because they love him. Because of that, there's an eagerness to give. It is, is not begrudging. It's not holding on to the money. Here it is, but I'm having a hard time letting it go, or, or, or I want something in return. Or a grandmother who gives generously to her grandchildren every birthday. Here's a $100 check in the mail. But there's strings attached. You better use this how I want you to use it. They don't do that. Why don't they do that? Well, they give generously simply because they want to they bless their grandchild. They want them to use that in however it would be an encouragement to them. And so it's the same heart attitude, the same heart attitude that Paul says ought to characterize the people of God. You, you who are here, who are rich, because you can go home and you'll have your church roast, who's not your pastor, by the way. You don't roast your pastor, hopefully, after the Sunday morning message. But you'll go home and you'll have your roast for dinner. That's how you've chosen to use your discretionary funds to the glory of God, I hope. He's pleased by that. Or maybe you'll change your clothes when you go home because you have more than one pair of clothes that you can wear. And so you, you here who are rich, do not be conceited. Do not be arrogant. Fix your hope on God. And conversely, do good with the riches that he has given to you. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, sometimes we fail to realize just how much that you have given to us. You have blessed us so immensely where we are geographically and where we are in the history of the world. So Lord, we pray that you would give us generous spirits. We give deeply and sacrificially out of the surplus that you've given to us simply because of how deeply, deeply we love you. Because we love you, we love seeing how our resources, our surplus is used for the advancement of your kingdom and the glory of your son's name. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. 
Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.